episode 77 of the Hoop Threads podcast here with my guy, Eric Singletary. We finally, finally made it happen. The stars finally aligned. Coach, how's it going? Oh, I'm doing well, Aaron. Thanks for having me, man. I'm glad you uh, exercised patience uh, to have <laughs> me here. So appreciate appreciate having me on. Man, in our line of work, that's that's an important thing. So, all right, so let's get right into it. Um, you know, kind of take us back to the beginning. You grew up in Southeast D.C. Uh, talk about how some of those early experiences, you know, with the game of basketball shaped your journey as a player and then eventually as a coach. Man, it's just like completely different than what you see today. I mean, the level of organized basketball that you see, which is um, actually really great for the kids in some ways, but I do, I relish the time that I had as a kid just uh, playing on the rec centers and uh, on the outside courts and just dreaming, you know, watching watching a lot of games. And then you go out there and try to emulate uh, the guys you see playing and working on this move and working on that move. So I didn't really start getting, you know, coached until middle school. I don't know what the Kelly Miller, but, uh, you know, my sports journey, I wouldn't even call it a basketball journey. My sports journey uh, back in my neighborhood was something that definitely kept me motivated and get me away from some of the trappings of, uh, you know, urban life. And, uh, you know, I, I talk about it all the time. Like, I'm just so thankful that, uh, one, that I was in the sports, and then, two, I was actually uh, able to be good at it. Mm, got you. Um, take us back to the beginning and, and tell us how you got into coaching. So you played, you know, at Sidwell. And, you know, talk about your career at Rice and then kind of what happened after that to lead you to coaching. Yeah, I mean, I had a good career here. Um, you know, really was out here competing against all the schools and, uh, trying to make a name for myself and ended up doing that by being an all-met basketball player, uh, all-met baseball player as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was happy to, you know, have a lot of options coming out of high school. And uh, Willis Wilson, who ended up being my coach at Rice University, at the time he was the assistant coach at Stanford uh, under Mike Montgomery. Uh, and I was about to go to, you know, commit to Stanford. But once he got the job at Rice, uh, took my visit to Houston, you know, loved it. You know, they were recruiting me really hard. I uh, knew what kind of school it was academically, so I always kind of wanted that balance uh, coming out of Sidwell and um, went down to Houston, had a pretty decent career, uh, nothing stellar, but a good career. I was a captain, um, you know, played against a lot of good players, made a lot of great relationships with my own teammates as well as uh, guys from other teams and just kind of always had a sense of the game in a different way than just playing it. Um, I was fortunate enough to be able to chase basketball a little bit longer uh, go, you know, try to do the overseas circuit, uh, Portugal and Germany, and then some stateside stuff here when the uh, now defunct, but the uh, IBL, which was the um, uh, league they had, semi-pro league they had in the state. So I was a typical guy, man, out here just searching, you know, even with a Sidwell and Rice degree, uh, I was still trying to make my life happen, you know, as a professional basketball player, uh, trying to live out that dream and chasing it and failing and uh, you know, getting no money, but it was still, you know, I, I don't regret uh, chasing it because I'm always also able to tell a lot of guys, um, I know why they're doing that. You know, you don't want to stop a guy from trying it, but you also try to give guys a glimpse of your story that sometimes your life is in front of you and, uh, you know, there's some other things you could be doing uh, that may be more fruitful than chasing basketball. But I, I definitely know how it consumes us. I, I was definitely one of those players. Mm-hmm. Got you. So what, what was your first kind of coaching job? How did that come about? Man, I, um, I've been running from coaching for a long time, probably. And I look back on it like I, you know, like I said, went to Sidwell, went to Rice. And so I always thought that I needed a profession that would be commiserate to like my education. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when I come back to reunions and, you know, hang out with your classmates, you know, they're going to tell you all the, you know, unbelievable careers that they're doing. So I kind of wanted to be up to par with them. And uh, I started coaching like literally 
uh, rec basketball, you know, to bring it full circle. I started coaching uh, rec, you know, seven, eight-year-olds uh, at the time my son was playing and uh, took the challenge of coaching that little team out in Clinton. Uh, then we took that rec team and we took it to AAU, a little mom and pop team, you know, the Clinton Celtics. So I cut my teeth there for at least till they got up to 13. So it was a good four or five years uh, uh, plus that I was coaching at that level and then got my first opportunity to coach under Steve Turner uh, down in Gonzaga uh, and had an amazing year watching him do his thing and Tyler Thornton and all those great players uh, that was on that team. And I had visions of being there for a while, like learning under his tutelage and learning what it was like to be a high school head coach and how to run a real successful program. But lo and behold, you know, one year into my career there, I get a call from Sidwell uh, asked me to come interview for the job. And uh, I wasn't going to take it because I didn't think I was ready. Uh, I'll never forget one of my mentors said, uh, you're never ready until you start. Mm. Uh, so I was back in uh, 08, 07, 08. Mm. Gotcha. So, you know, you started at the beginning. I was talking to uh, Kyle Williams, one of your longtime parents there. Um, he said it kind of started with Jamal Lewis, uh, middle schooler that ended up staying with y'all uh, and then kind of led to, you know, Josh Hart and some of his teams. Um, and Singletary was recruiting Jelani, uh, Josh's senior year. Uh, talk about the game against Gonzaga that kind of put you guys on the map. Yeah, I mean, that's a game that, you know, upstart program, you're always trying to uh, chase excellence. And, you know, when I took this job, my only goal was to make us more relevant than we were when I played here. So I just wanted to be a tough out, uh, <laughs> make people respect us, you know, not lose to other people's jerseys. I felt like uh, me and some of my teammates did that, you know, when we were here. Um, and so we got that opportunity to be in the Gonzaga Classic. Uh, obviously, like I said, the great Jamal Lewis started all off by, you know, trusting me. I had a long uh, standing history with his family through AAU. So I played against Jamal tons of years. So the family knew who I was. and uh, But they entrusted me to uh, get it done for him. And then, like you said, a year later, Josh Hart comes in here. Uh, and your team just changes, you know, kind of overnight. Like, you know, we had my first year here, the guys played hard. We were really good. We set the culture right away. But, you know, when you get a player like Josh uh, and Jamal together, as well as Matt Hillman and some other guys, we had Philip McGloin. Uh, we took a team in there that, you know, had no fear. They really didn't. I mean, they just, uh, they were ready for that game. They were excited. We were well prepared. Um, it was a big stage. You never know how they're going to perform. I always laugh because some reporters usually ask me, like, am I nervous uh, before a big game? And I said, yeah, because I can't play. <laughs> <laughs> so you know you're nervous for the kids and you know as coaches you know this like you just kind of got the best seat in the house mm -hmm. uh, and you just got to hope that you're prepared enough and that the kids are bold enough to go out there and be great and you know Josh uh, the whole team you know but Josh put on the show that mm -hmm. day and uh, like you said those are those impetus uh, watershed moments that get a Jelani Williams uh, to look at Sidwell and then Jelani Williams and leads into Jason Gibson uh, leads into Sadiq Bay. So every kid uh, begets the next kid. So, you know, I love that about our program. Got you. And with that, um, like that tournament, I think that was a Gonzaga classic that you ended up being Gonzaga and then you lost to MSJ with Phil Booth uh, yep. later in the year, uh, beat Deion Wiley uh, with Potomac as well. Um, some big wins for for kind of the up and coming program. Um, was Josh Hart kind of a heralded guy coming in? You know, talk, talk about what he looked like before he came into high school. No, I mean, like, clearly, like, you know, it didn't take me long. You know, I think I have pretty good eyes for talent. It didn't take me long to see him, you know, put him through a workout. But he was coming in from Wheaton High School, 
Um, so I don't think he was, you know, he didn't play on one of the main AAU teams, but certainly people that I talked to was like, you know, always played with that fire, always played with intensity, you know, always had an unbelievable motor. Um, and so, no, he wasn't supremely heralded or known. And uh, he came in here, made a splash right away um, and just worked hard, you know, worked hard at becoming, you know, not only a great player, but, you know, it's chronicled about some of his academic struggles uh, that he had initially and um, the whole community rallied around him. And uh, but still, he had to do the work, you know, so I give always give Josh and his family a lot of credit uh, for sticking it out. You know, at a place like Civil is not easy. So um, I think that probably proved that he was tougher than even he shows on the basketball court. Let's go back real quick to the to the beginning of your your coaching career at Sidwell. What were some of the pillars kind of of your culture that that you kind of came up with, and then I'm I'm assuming you added stuff kind of as you saw it the next couple of years, as far as what you wanted the program to be and what you wanted the typical player to look like. Yeah, I mean that's a great question, Aaron. Like I think for me that was the compass that I wanted to have. I didn't want it to be so. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like flexible in the sense of like you know you're anything will do. I just kind of wanted to give us a compass. So uh, we came up with toughness, uh, attitude, and intelligence as our, you know, core values, you know, just very simple three core values uh, that have robust meaning to them. But, you know, we, the typical really good basketball players, civil friends should exhibit all three of those qualities because we just think not only those qualities, they help you become a really good basketball player, which leads to us being a good team. Uh, we think those are life uh, values that, you know, you have the attitude and your approach and everything you do that's very important uh the toughness to be able to tackle like tough situations um, um and leads into great decision making as well uh then obviously the intelligence to be able to uh operate under pressure uh to make the right decisions to be able to execute you know on both ends of the floor those are pillars that we think can take you into the rest of your life when you're making decisions uh and how you handle things that come at you so uh, they've been tremendous for us we've been able to kind of stick to those core values. And I think if you came and asked any of our, all the way down to the middle school players, which I coach as well, if you ask them uh, what our core values were, they'd be able to tell you and explain them as well. Okay. We'll get kind of to, into that a little bit more as far as what you're looking for in recruiting, as well as, you know, the future, the teams after, you know, that that uh, point was where before Sadiq came in and, and kind of helped things along. But um how do I phrase this? When, when did you kind of know that you had made it as a coach or what was the turning point in your coaching career? Like if this hadn't happened, you wouldn't kind of be in the spot you're in now. Man, that's some tough questions, man. Uh, some good ones, though. Some thought-provoking questions. Uh, maybe the Gonzaga game. Yeah. You know, I think we had some moments before then, like just turning the corner in the program and competing at the top of the league. And I think some of the validation that we got from the parents, even right away, uh, that summer when I took over the job, we did a couple of team camps and we lost the games, Aaron, but like we played so well and hard and the parents were just ecstatic. And I couldn't, I was like, why are they happy? Like we lost the game. Um, and so you just learned that, you know, how you make people feel is probably even equally, if not more important than like winning games. So I think for me, just um, like I said, I probably can point to that Gonzaga game becomes the easiest one to do. Um, but I think that it was a steady progression to, the amount of respect that I was receiving from my peers and the validation that I was receiving from them uh, along the way. And just, uh, you started seeing teams prepare for you uh, in, a, in a way that they probably hadn't had to prepare for so well in the past. Uh, oh, I'll tell you one, I got a good one. It was a middle school game though, it wasn't high school. Okay. Uh, we would typically play modern day who is known to be, 
you know, super tough in all sports. And we would go over there and, and I'd even ask my my boss, like, why are we playing modern day? Like, they're too good and we don't get any of their players. So what's the purposes of, a, of us playing them? But I'll never forget one year we took a group over there. I want to say this was Chris Gamble and those guys when they were in middle school. Uh, so it was a pretty good, tough team. And I remember some of the modern day parents saying that we were playing too rough. And so that was the day that I knew we arrived as a program. <laughs> you weren't you weren't an easy win anymore, I guess. Yeah, mind. exactly. I got you. That's that's the goal. All right, so let's go back. Uh, you know, after um that that big win, I promise. I know Turner's gonna listen to this. Turner, don't smack. <laughs> He's gonna smack me if I bring up that game again. So you know, after that, uh, you know, City came over from Dematha and, and reclassed as a freshman at Sidwell. Um, Kyle told me he was five, nine and he only played, you know, 10, 12 minutes a game came off the bench as a sophomore and then started, you know, as a six man and eventually took over the starting spot when Jelani got hurt that next year, um, that kind of led to his success. Uh, but you know, you had Johnny Jelani and, uh, Sadiq. And then I think Jason came in the next year. Was he already on the team? Yeah. Jason was a freshman, uh, when Sadiq was a sophomore so yeah yeah next year yeah talk about you know kind of what you saw with that core and kind of what it culminated in once you know those three guys had graduated we'll get to the Wilson game in in a second as well but man Aaron that was a that was a time man because I I tell people all the time like I probably should this should have been part of that answer about when I knew we arrived it's when Jelani and those guys were uh freshmen and you started getting your first like real recruiting class because Jamal and Josh kind of don't count. I mean, Matt Hillman went four years, um, but Jelani and them coming on the heels of that success, we went 0-12 uh, in the in the MAC mm-hmm. uh, when he was young. And, you know, we were transitioning as post-Josh era um, and just the fortitude and the never-quit attitude that I saw in the leadership uh, in Jelani, even as a freshman, you know, taking the lumps uh, uh, that year. And then, the, you know, along with him, Ashton Jones was in that class, uh, A. Stallings, uh, Ross Young that came over from St. Anselm. So the pieces were, were coming together. And once we put that team together and you added Sadiq and, uh, and Jason Gibson to that team, that was a real, and Abbasala, who was one of my best point guards I've ever had. Um, that was a that was a group to be reckoned with. That was a really strong group by the time they became uh, juniors. Uh, so okay. I think that group itself is probably one of the greatest uh projects that that ended up taking us probably where we are today okay i had a conversation with gibby uh with jason gibson about about i told him i was going to interview you and i was like i know you got to have a a sidwell story for me (laughs) and uh he said he had a conversation with you at the governor's challenge uh senior year and it was a team that you know was tough and was kind of like your kind of team but they didn't have you know dudes so to speak no disrespect it was just kind of like gibson and 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 a bunch of guys just, that just knew their role and excelled in it. Um, and he said, you, you pull them aside and you tell them, you told me you needed to take more shots. He was like, man, coaches is looking at me. Like, I believe in you. Like you need to do this for us to be successful. And he's like, I mean, I already had the green light, but it was good to hear from him. It was good to hear him say it. <laughs> Talk yeah, about I mean, like, like finding those moments as a coach where, where you have to have those conversations with players and, and kind of talk about, you know, coaching a player like like Jason that that didn't really get an offer until after that championship game, you know, versus some of your NBA guys and talk about kind of dealing with those two different types of players. Yeah, Aaron, I think um, I think high school in general uh, is a very insecure time for kids uh, as they grow into their bodies and uh, puberty and maturity and trying to figure out what it means to be a young adult. Um, 
And I think like oftentimes in sports, you know, it's one of the few places that we can fail and be successful, but the failure still feels real, you know, to the kids. So I think Jason, as talented as he was, was uh, wasn't a very confident player. Uh, his confidence didn't match his ability. Like mm -hmm. I say, he played well from his freshman year on. And I always knew something special was like really inside of him. And so I just wanted to keep encouraging him and giving him confidence that there wasn't a shot that he could take uh, that was going to upset me. I can, I can teach him to shoot better shots, but I can't coach you to shoot it. Right? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of kids today, uh, mm -hmm. for lack of a better word, they're robots. Right? I always say like they can be coached because they've been coached for so long, Aaron. But mm -hmm. if you ask them just to play, they can't play. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just wanted to give him that confidence. I remember telling him that his first shot uh, should be from 27 feet. And he looked at me and goes, why, coach? I said, because you don't have to make it. They just got to know they're going to you out there. <laughs> you know? I got you. So guys with that kind of talent, though, man, you want to make sure that they have no fear, that they have no, when the buzzer goes off, they're not looking over their shoulder, um, that what I say to them is just no ways. Like, you want those guys to be, like, completely free and, like, locked in to, like, play to that wizardry that I think Jason possessed. You know what I mean? Every every guy doesn't have that. I try mm -hmm. to give all my players confidence. Mm -hmm. Those ones who are really special, you don't want them to be locked up by anything. Yeah. Well, it's, I, I was going to save this for later, but we can talk about it now. Um, you know, how do you decide as a coach when when you need to run offense and when you need to run a set versus when to let them freelance? And, you know, what have you learned about taking a step back as a coach and kind of trusting your players in that regard? Man, Aaron, that's, man, that's a million dollars. I'm sure it's like million dollar question almost million dollar statement because you're right man like I've gotten so much better at that you know what I mean as coaches we often want to exercise so much control because we know or we believe that what we run is going to work and we all know now uh 25% to 30% of the stuff we call is going to work so the rest <laughs> of these guys you know learn how to improvise and make plays so I've improved tremendously at allowing them just to make plays um, that I can coach them through later, but not trying to control like every possession. That also comes, the more talented you get, you don't have to feel as I got to control every possession. I got to do this for us to win. Um, so that comes along with just getting better as well, but also uh, me improving as a coach and, and learning that I really don't have that much control. Uh, and that control that I try to exercise should be exercise and practice, uh, not mm -hmm. in games. Mm, gotcha. Sometimes it really is about the uh, the Jimmys and the Joes, not the X's and the O's. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's talk about kind of culture specific questions. Uh, you know, Kyle was like, if you just want to come here for basketball, Citadel is not the place for you. Kind of describe, you know, our, our type of guy is something that's on a lot of your social media stuff. You know, what type of families do you want to recruit? Um, what are you kind of looking for in that process as far as questions that you want to hear from parents versus maybe some statements from them or, or questions from that, that that kind of turn you off, make them think, you know, make you think rather that that it might not be the best, the best fit. Yeah, man, that's super important. I think Sidwell is a place, uh, obviously we already have a low admissions yield. Um, and so we, we can't really miss, like, you know, of course we've missed out on some families, uh, but we can't miss uh, with the, with the structure of the family that we want. Um, you know, excellent question. I want families that are curious. Right. I want families that are like extremely curious about whether they already know about Sidwell or they have perceptions about Sidwell or maybe they have no clue uh, what Sidwell is. But I still want them to be as equally curious about uh, what this situation looks like for their kid, you know, academically, socially, uh, environmentally, uh, community service wise. Uh, and certainly we happen to be really good at sports right now. So it's an exciting time. But at the end of the day, 
Kyle's 100% right. I always say that if you come to sit well to play sports, you're going to fail. Like, it's going to be too hard. You know what I mean? Like, sports, like I said, is the only place where you can get an F and be successful, but it's still an F. And so it's not that much winning. You know, you're going to shoot 40% maybe, right? You're going to hit three out of 10 baseballs, hopefully. You're going to complete six out of 10 passes as a quarterback. So, you know, the bigger thing is, like, how do you build network? How do you build community? How do you come to a place? Um, and also, I try to tell families, don't come here and be a guest. You know, especially if you're outside of the realm of like if Sidwell wasn't on your natural trajectory uh, as a student, uh, don't come here and be, come here and give us all the gifts that you have, not just physically, but also emotionally, uh, spiritually. And uh, like I said, academically and socially, we want those families who understand that you're going to, you know, you're making a 40 year decision uh, when you come to Sidwell. It's not something that's bleeding to the point where you're so wrapped up and consumed. Uh, one of the things I think we're really good at Aaron, I think we've hit this sweet spot that we have kids and families that are totally invested in what we're doing, but also detached enough where it still it works. Because uh, I think sometimes you can be so consumed by it that all it brings you is frustration. Mm. So you got to be consumed, but also detached, you know, kind of trying to put those oxymorons together uh, where the truth becomes in the middle. And so I think just by Sidwell's nature of the schoolwork, uh, the homework and all the other stuff that comes with this place. Hopefully we're getting a family that understands that uh, and then trust me to, you know, help elevate their kid as a player. Talk about your development plan for your players kind of, you know, before they arrive. And then once they get there, kind of recruiting to that plan. Um, you know, what have you learned about that process? Because I'm sure that, you know, recruiting just the high school athlete, I'm sure now is very, very different from from when you started even at Sidwell. Yeah, I mean, it's become like more detail, right? Like you really try to, I think high school is the last place as a coach where you do have to have a lot of flexibility. Uh, you can't say like, I'm going to run the flex, you know I mean? You can, um, but you can't say that and then think every kid is going to be able to be really good at that. So mm -hmm. I think we are the last place where we have to be knowledgeable enough and flexible enough to like actually do stuff that fits uh, each group that you have. Each team is different. Like I always say your program can be healthy uh, because the culture is right, but each team is going to take on a whole different dynamic every year. You try to figure out, uh, what to do. So part of my development plan stems back to my playing career, you know, certainly when I went to Europe and just see how they um, develop players and they try to make the complete player because you don't know who's going to be what height, who's going to do what. And so you try not to pigeonhole guys uh, into certain positions. I think Jalen Rose said it best. Uh, positions were just created uh, for the novice to understand the game. Mm -hmm. um, you certainly got to be flexible and versatile. Uh, so I think over the years, when you look at a civil basketball player outside of just being you know, no nonsense and tough on the defensive end, which is unequivocal for us. Offensively, I just think I try to develop guys at their own pace, uh, try to develop them at what they do well, try to expand that and the stuff that they don't do well, try to shore that up and not make it a weakness. But sometimes I try not to get so wrapped up into like being so well-rounded that we forget the thing that we do really well. Uh, mm -hmm. So I try to get guys to really play to their strengths. Um, but one of the big details that I think I focus on the most there's a philosophy I believe in that the older you get, uh, if you can't pass, you can't play. Um, so I just, you know, we do a lot of passing. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just think that, you know, that's a lost art and not just feeding the post. I mean, just, a, you know, when I think of a Caleb Williams, the reason I think that he's attractive, in my opinion, is that he can move the ball around the floor. Mm -hmm. and I think that's an underrated skill. I think he has a really good feel for when he needs to make a play for himself versus when he needs to make a play for a team for a teammate or just move the ball. It doesn't have to be the assist that leads to the basket. Yep. It yep. can be the swing pass that kind of leads to that. Um, 
what what have been some of the most effective tools in kind of establishing your culture and poise? You know, you kind of mentioned, you know, we'll get to the poise thing in a second, but more establishing culture, especially in practice, as far as kind of what you go into every day in practice, like, all right, we're going to do this um, and kind of like how that progresses throughout the season, because, you know, for people that do have not coached before, you cannot coach as hard at the end of the year as you did at the beginning of the year. By then, right. you're open to kind of be peaking. So kind of talk about what that progression looks like in practice throughout the year. No, I mean, once again, another excellent question. You know, I talk in clinics and try to talk to, you know, I'm the, I'm the OG now. I, th- I still think of <laughs> I talk to some younger coaches like Devin Page out at Grace, who's a, you know, awesome young coach. And um I just talk about, like like you said, building the season. You know what I mean? It really is building the season. You can't, you know, you try to stay with the fundamentals of what you believe in, whether that's defense, passing, uh, you know, rebounding, whatever you want to do. But we try to stay detailed in the, that the practice looks the same at the start of practice with, uh, you know, whatever drill we may do within our stretching and just trying to get the volume right in practice, uh, guys talking and stuff like that. So just, I think we're only as good as what we emphasize as coaches, you know what I mean? So I think to me is a daily emphasis on communication, a daily emphasis on toughness. Like I said, our core values, like we want to see who's exhibiting these three things every day in practice. And if we're doing that somewhat as a whole, then we know by the end of the season, like we should be in the place we want to be. Uh, I agree with you hundred percent. Like we, you know, we do the two hours like everybody else at the beginning. And then eventually you know, after the break, after Christmas, we try to reduce that to an hour. Uh, I've gotten so much better at treating the practice plan like a contract. Uh, <laughs> and no matter what we don't do right, uh, when that buzzer goes off, we move on to the next drill. So I've gotten a lot better at that. That's why I said you have to evolve as a coach. Like, you know, there's no uh, guardrails to it. You know, you can go off. There's so many things in your mind you think you that you know. And if you don't have a real compass on what you're trying to accomplish, uh, sometimes you can get, you know, that – buzzer goes off and you're not satisfied and you're doing that thing for the next 20 minutes and you've messed up the whole practice plan. In setting up the practice plan, I'm just curious selfishly as, you know, a former coach, is is that something that you're talking with your assistant coaches before practice gets started or at the end of practice, you know, one day you're talking about what you guys want to cover the next day. What does that look like from a coaching? Yeah, standpoint? a little bit of both, a little bit of both. Uh, if we had a tough practice, I'll ask them like what they saw and like make some notes. And like you said, maybe a drill that we didn't do so well, I'll put more time on that for the next day. Uh, But certainly before practice, a lot of times I'll show them uh, the edit of what I want to do. And then, you know, what I want them to do within the practice. And they certainly have the autonomy to tell me um, too long or we don't need to do that, stuff like that. So it's been helpful to have their input on that. But yeah, both after practice and before practice, we'll look at the practice plan and see uh, what we're trying to accomplish for that day. Okay. You know, talk about the the process of hiring an assistant to replace ones that moved on. You know, Coach Powell is probably the best example of that. Yeah. Um, but kind of talk about what that replacement process looks like and what you're kind of looking in, uh, looking for in an assistant coach, rather, uh, before you kind of bring them in. Man, um, I'm telling you, man, like, you know, I don't interview guys that much. It's almost like the same way we've gotten the players there. Like it's usually through like word of mouth. As you spoke, Cal Williams not only uh, has all three of his boys playing for me, but he's done a tremendous job <laughs> of getting families like, you know, Sadiq Bays and Jason Gibson and uh, yeah. a few others to come this way. Um, and just like I'll say, like when I interviewed you, um, certainly if we had space. Like, you know, you had the qualities of what I was looking for, uh, you know, supremely hard worker, in love with the game. 
you know, in love with different facets of the game, not only teaching it, but come from a background of like film, you know, statistics and analytics, like all that stuff becomes important when you're trying to put a staff together. But more importantly, you just try to find some people um, that you're willing to lose with, you know, so it becomes an energy thing uh, mm -hmm. for me. Um, certainly I have these guys working. They're not just watching me work, but ultimately like, you know, when the game's over, win or lose, especially if we lose, uh, do I want to go to Cactus Cantina with you and debrief about the game? <laughs> you know what I mean? So some guys you win with that you may not want to hang out with. So to me, part of it is like finding the guys you can lose with. Gotcha. Okay. Um, talk about, let's get back to practice for a second. I know I'm skipping around quite a bit, but talk about like you guys are in, you guys were in a lot of single digit games this year and you came out on the right end of a lot of them as well. Uh, what do you do in practice as far as drilling or, you know, the conversations that you're having with players to give them confidence or assistant coaches kind of talk to them as far as just kind of creating poise and um, just them all kind of being prepared for that moment. Yeah. A lot of situational work, a lot of situational work on the clock, uh, usually cheat against the first five and put them down by a lot uh, <laughs> where they can't come back. But as long as they, you know, cut it close, I'll tell them that, you know, I cheat, I did that on purpose and stuff like that, but a lot of situational work and just talking about, how to play through poise, a lot of free throw situations. I think sometimes we coaches, we forget that tight games are going to come down to free throws. So if you're scrimmaging, you got to incorporate free throws as a part of uh, the scrimmaging, you know, make or miss how you set up your defenses. And, uh, but I agree. I think the more poised I am, the more poised the staff is, even though we're getting after it, uh, it, it allows the kids to be poised and not panic. You know I mean? At the end of the day, um, I try to exhibit that kind of confidence that I have, uh, that we're prepared enough uh, for any situation, as you've seen uh, in the past, we've been down uh, some big games and uh, didn't panic and not been able to come back and, like, you know, stay the course. Okay. What have you learned about motivating your best players versus kind of keeping role players engaged, you know, especially if it's a, kind of a younger kid? Uh, you know, younger players have to wait their turn. How do you get them to stay locked in when it's not their time yet? That's a tough one. That's a tough one. I think we all coaches know that that's tough. It's almost as tough as the day you have to cut kids. Um, it's, it's having kids on your team that give you that unbelievable effort every day. Uh, but like you said, it's just not their turn. Um, I just think staying in their ear, I think demanding them to be excellent in practice, uh, given that, you know, we, we scrimmage quite a bit, even if it's controlled in the half court. Um, so I think always having them be engaged in a competitive way. I think sometimes if you do uh, just too many drills or you're only doing stuff as scout, uh, those guys don't feel like they're sometimes getting better. Um, so I just, I keep preaching about improvement. and But I do make that known. I say there's only two reasons that you're not playing for me. Um, that's usually because either you're not ready to produce at the level that I think we need. Um, but the second part, which is probably about 85%, is what you just said, Aaron. It's just not your turn. Uh, it's just not your turn. Somebody else can do it better than you uh, at this point. And when it's your turn, that's the cycle of basketball. So we try to keep them engaged. But as far as the best players, I've always believed in being super tough on them, uh, you know, super demanding, uh, have, you know, high expectations for their effort, uh, not so much their production, but just their effort and their focus and their attitude. Mm. Uh, I've been, you know, I'm like, if you're going to get all the playing time and when I yell at you, you don't tend to come out of the game. There's more responsibility with that. Mm. Uh, with the reserves, I try to be much more encouraging about taking chances, uh, being risk takers, uh, you can't uh, zero mistake yourself into more playing time, right? Mm -hmm. Usually as a reserve, you're coming out of the game anyway. Mm 
you know, whether you make a bunch <laughs> of shots, you know, whether you, uh, you know, make three or four turnovers. But I try to give them the confidence that, uh, you know, be poised, uh, you know, be be intelligent, but also be a risk taker, like believe in yourself, you know, like you're mm -hmm. coming out anyway. Yeah, yeah, no, that part's that part's important, and, and a lot of time that that blunt honesty is is kind of rough to uh, communicate to guys because they don't always receive it well. So, um, talk about the dealing with the expectations of a nationally ranked program, like the one that you had this year at the beginning of the season. Uh, mm -hmm. You kind of came into the season with a ton of expectations coming off another MAC championship last year. Uh, brought in a big transfer into Caden Lewis. Um, they reclassed on this sophomore year and, you know, played a big role coming off the bench, especially with the injury issues that you had, you know, talk about the expectations of a nationally ranked program versus some of your earlier Sidwell teams that didn't have a, you know, a quote unquote stud. I mean, I'd be lying if I said, you know, you don't take on that. Um, I wouldn't call it pressure, but like you said, expectation. And sometimes you take it on from the kids because like I didn't have it for me. I think most coaches, uh, that's worth their salt. No, you know, you, you try to keep the main thing, the main thing, uh, which is improvement. Um, and try, like you said earlier, having your team peaking at a certain point. Uh, but certainly the kids, you take on, you know, some of their energy sometimes. And, you know, I try to keep them, you know, under wraps and under control to let them know that, like, those rankings are subject subjective at best. Um, and that the only one that does matter, if it does matter, is the last one. Mm -hmm. um, and so... I uh, try to keep them focused on, you know, just playing the game in front of them. Because uh, sometimes, like, when you have a high ranking like that, Aaron, uh, and you feel like uh, – I always say boxing is the only sport you can defend, like the defending champion. Because if you lose, somebody else takes the belt. Mm -hmm. But in basketball, I try to tell them, like, no, we're chasing a whole new trophy. Mm -hmm. Like, they, they're not going to come take the one that we got. Like, the state and the MAC, like, those, those will hang forever. And so – because I think if you're defending – you know, the root word of it is being defensive and like you're trying to hold on to something that's not even yours. Mm -hmm. And so you're not out here attacking something uh, and chasing greatness. And I think early in the year, compounded by the injuries, I do think we had a little bit of that. Like, man, like we're defending and if we lose, we're going to drop out. You know, we just never had that notion before. And I felt a little bit of that at the beginning of the year uh, mm -hmm. from the players that they were holding on to something as opposed to just actually just playing. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the beginning. That was actually my first year in the DMV, I think 20, 2018. Yeah. Uh, wasn't it? Yeah. When you guys beat uh, a really, really good, really well-coached uh, Wilson team uh, with Coach Hernandez, uh, the Mitchell Twins, uh, had Dominguez Stevens, had Jay Heath, had uh, Darren Buchanan coming off the bench. Um, and and you guys kind of shocked the world in a sense. Kind of talk, bring me back to that game and kind of – what you felt kind of going into it um, and kind of the game plan that you had that you think would, would give your guys a chance to be successful and, and get that trophy. Man, what a moment, right? I mean, just being able to play that game uh, on the back door of my neighborhood uh, that I kind of grew up in and just having a bunch of family and friends be able to come out and see us. I mean, that was a magical run we had that year, you know, taking some L's late in the season in conference. I think we lost the MAC championship to Flint Hill that year. It's a good team with a Caduce. Wahab and uh, those mm. those guys and um, uh, but we came into the state tournament feeling confident. We had a a doozy of a first round game against McKinley where we almost lost. We didn't play very well. Jason Gibson hits a buzzer beater uh, to win it for us. And sometimes you have those moments right there that kind of re-energize and refocus your team. Mm. Uh, and then we had an unbelievable game against St. John's in the semis uh, at Georgetown. And I think by that time we just 
got back to that belief that we had that year that we could beat anybody. We just had to execute uh, at a high level. We knew what type of challenge they presented with their size and just their talent overall. Um, and I just told the guys, I thought that looking at that year, if I, if I scouted them, mm -hmm. uh, most of the games that they lost were games where they were close. Like they blew a lot of people out, mm -hmm. but every game that was close, they lost. And so I just, I thought that was the compass uh, was to give the guys the confidence that if we kept it close, that our poise, as you mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. uh, would take over because in that moment, as we see in the NCAA tournament all the time, you can tell that they are trying to hold on to something uh, greater than what we were chasing, right? We were chasing something and they were trying to hold on. And there's an embarrassment level, uh, not that Coach Hernandez had this, but it's hard for teenagers to say when they're hearing that they're going to win by 30 or 40, mm. it's hard for them to get out of that mindset when once the game becomes really tight mm. back and forth. Gotcha. Uh, coach T. Johnson is, is the head coach at now Jackson Reed, uh, then then Wilson High School. Um, you guys won a, a, a another tight game uh, in the in the DC State Tournament. DCI double, I forget. Yeah, y'all, whatever. The champion. <laughs> um, what what did you say to him in in the handshake line? What was your kind of message to him? And and you know, what do you think of him as a coach as well? The the first one? Uh, no, the, this last one. This, this year? This, yeah. Um, I mean, in that moment, like it was, I guess it was better. What you can say is better than, you know, when you win at the buzzer, it's just hard to like console uh, the other coach. You know, we, we had a pretty, I wouldn't say easy, but, you know, it was a comfortable win this year. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I mean, he's my cousin, you know, so that's one thing that a lot of people. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. And so I think he's a tremendous young coach, uh, mm -hmm. unbelievable worker. Um, his guys get better. I mean, he teaches the game at a high level. So, I mean, at the end of the day, the only thing I can tell him is that, man, shoot, I mean, he's right there. I mean, he's continued the legacy that they – I mean, obviously he was with Hernandez on that, on that run, but they've been in the championship five straight years. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, the last two, three years on his watch. So, mm. at the end of the day, like, you just tell him, like, just keep up the great work. I mean, that's all you can really tell him. Like, there's nothing – in that moment, like, you know, you can't console him but so much because, you know, it just hurts to lose uh, that final game, you know, the grasp of – uh, what, you know, what we all hope to win at the end of the year. Uh, certainly, you know, the fact that they keep coming up short against us as well. So I'm sure that has a, a double meaning and a double hurt to it. So mm -hmm. just try to keep him encouraged and just tell him how good I think he is. Mm -hmm. So we kind of talked about the David moment uh, with, with you guys uh, kind of clipping Wilson in, the, in that, in that championship game. Um, Goliath moment was kind of this past season. You had a, uh, a big game, uh, down the down the home stretch of the season against PVI at a neutral site location. Sure. Um, how do you feel about people calling your win against PVI an upset? Um, and talk about the injuries that y'all had this season because I think that was the first national game that uh, that Caleb Williams played in, right? Yeah, I mean he missed a ton of games this year, a uh, couple of injuries, and like you said, we were never full strength. And most people think full strength hurts you in games, and what they really do it hurts you in practice mm. uh, and developing chemistry and confidence and timing. Uh, so even when they do come back, there's a sense of uh, the timing that's in the rhythm that, you know, it takes a season to get, you know, that as a coach. So uh, that time missed in practice is equally, if not greater than missing them in games. So uh, I just thought it was like, once again, I give Glenn a lot of credit for taking the game, especially that late. Mm -hmm. uh, we were trying to find another date on the calendar that made sense. I uh, thought it was great for the city by being on President's Day, no other games, uh, or President's Weekend, no other games being played that day. So had a great turnout. Um, 
I mean, I'm okay with whatever people call it. I mean, I, I certainly knew and was confident that we had a chance to win the game without uh, diminishing how great they were um, and they deserved all the accolades that they were receiving uh, all year. Um, so we knew it was going to be a tough game. But once again, I mean, we just put a product out there, Aaron. Like, I think, and I'll say this on your podcast for people to hear, I think that, as you know, as good as I think I am or as good as people say that I am, and I appreciate that, I think what's gone missing is when people say upset, I think people are still caught into Eric Singletary when I was climbing this race um, and doing it with, you know, what they considered less talent. And I think people still put me in that category where they give me more credit uh, than my players. And I think if you look across that bench, you know, my players can go pound for pound with anybody else in the, in the DMV. So uh, calling it an upset, I get it. You know, like at the time they were number one in the country uh, in some publications, but uh, I think the people that really know basketball know that that wasn't, that game could have went either way. And so it can be uh, not expected, but an upset uh, may be a little bit much. Are we going to get that game again next year? Any news on I mean, that? Look, I'm, I'm open to it for sure. Okay. All right. So two more questions and then quick, some quick hitters and we'll get you out of here. Um, what have you learned kind of, this is the, this is a crazy week for, for college basketball coaches. There's a lot of movement. Uh, what have you learned about being offered kind of coaching jobs at the next level? Uh, what is that process like? And uh, what advice would you have for high school coaches that are kind of in that position? It's a tough position for us. I think that, you know, once you're used to being in charge somewhere, uh, there's a lot of stability in high school. Um, but I certainly say if it's a dream of yours, even if it's not a dream, you have to be open to it. Like myself, I'm, I'm open to uh, the possibilities and the conversations and you have to think about it. And uh, I'm more open to it than I was, you know, when my son was a little younger. Um, but I would say just pay attention. I mean, like at the end of the day, I think one of the things that always had me hesitant, Aaron, was that um, it's, it's not basketball as much as it's a lifestyle change. Um, yeah. you, you know, basically you get hired to get fired. Yeah. Uh, you get hired to have to take a new job that's, you know, provides you more uh, players or more resources, more money. Um, so it's just a different game. And I think like, you know, you need to be aware, you know, what it is before you step into it. But I think high school coaches, it's difficult for them also because we don't have, we're not a part of search firms and search engines and we may not have agents uh, who make and do that legwork for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just think the college game, just like the pro game, kind of ends up recycling itself because there's a trust level uh, of the people that's already on that level that knows the ins and outs and maybe they don't particularly trust the high school guy to be able to come in and be the CEO of the program because I, I agree with that, that you know, 10% of the job is coaching. You know, the other 90% is dealing with alumni, mm-hmm. uh, the president, the provost, uh, mm-hmm. the board, uh, the media, uh, just the whole thing, just being, you know, the front and center CEO of the whole program is something that I think most DMV coaches learn that because we are that. Uh, <laughs> the spaces that uh, we, we occupy, especially some of these independent uh, private and Catholic schools, we deal with that on a smaller scale, but. So I definitely think that I'd be prepared to make that jump if it ever came my way um, from that standpoint, but I'm certainly more open to it. Wouldn't break me not to do it ever, but certainly don't want to turn down anything that may be more fruitful for me in my career. At least perfectly in my, my last question before the quick hitters, what, what makes the DMV different? Uh, is it, you know, from, from the rest of the kind of hotbeds of talent in the country? I mean, without, being in all the different hotbeds, right? I mean, obviously I went to school in Houston, so a ton of talent in the state of Texas and even in the city of Houston. 
Um, certainly, you know, you grow up learning about New York and uh, Philly and, you know, just this Eastern Seaboard and, you know, West Coast. I mean, there's plenty of places, but I think the concentration of the DMV being so small, I just think per capita, you just have so many good players, you know, and credit to a lot of the youth coaches, you know what I mean? Like, you know, who sometimes get denigrated. I think they do a great job uh, of at least getting those kids prepared to compete at the highest level. So once they get to high school, uh, it's usually like somewhat of a seamless transition for some of them. So I just think that we do a really good job at the youth level, you know, and the, you know, just the Potomac Valley and all the things that, you know, you experience. These guys, these kids have traveled and done unbelievable things, and even locally, just some of the wars they have uh, with one another, if not going down to Baltimore, all the way down to Richmond. Um, and I just think once you get to high school, man, I just think the, the amount of coaches, you know, the amount of good coaching, uh, real programs, right, not just teams, guys that have run programs, you know, all the way through middle school, like me, like I coached the high school, but I also coached the middle school team. So I just think you have a ton of good coaches, a ton of good players and a small concentrated area who knows that's, that's what they're known for. So now every kid that grows up wants to be a part of that fraternity. Mm -hmm. All right, let's get the, through these hit, uh, quick hitters. Uh, what's the game show you think you could win? Well, I hope it's Jeopardy since I watch it the most. <laughs> <laughs> and I know <laughs> a lot of miscellaneous information. <laughs> That's okay. the nerd in me. I right. Jeopardy. There you go. Uh, invite three basketball minds to a dinner to chop it up with. Oh, God. Hubie Brown. Hmm. Hubie Brown. Three basketball minds. John McClendon. The late John McClendon, Hubie Brown, and what's one more basketball man I want? Jerry West. Hmm. Sure, they got some good ones for sure. Uh, what coach have you stolen the most from? Jay Wright. Jay Wright. Okay. Uh, the talk about the the one the one that got away, the one recruit that you almost had that that you really thought would have been great at Sidwell. Oh my God. Uh, there's two. I'll say re most recently, Terrence Williams. Um, and then, man, I was absolutely in love with, uh, I don't know if you remember, Trey Wood, mm. who played at St. John's. And I think he ended up at LIU, Brooklyn, perhaps. Okay. That was yeah. just before my time here. I think yeah. that was 16 or 2017. Uh, MJ or LeBron? MJ. Nice. What book is a must read for every basketball coach? Ooh. Morgan Wooden's book. Okay. Gotcha. I'll have to check that out. I actually haven't read that one yet. Uh, would you rather take a charge from Shaq or try to guard KD with the game on the line? Guard KD with the game on the line. <laughs> <laughs> no, no one has chosen the Shaq the Shaq. <laughs> <laughs> said, at least with the KD one, he might miss. Yeah. Like Shaq's, they're gonna call a block. They may not call anything. <laughs> Even if they call a charge, I'm injured. What's the best dynasty you've seen in basketball? That I've seen, Chicago. The Bulls. Okay. Yeah, the Bulls. Uh, give me an underrated uh, Twitter follow. Underrated Twitter follow. Man, I'm so social media like baby. I'm a baby when it comes to social media. Oh, I can't answer that one. Okay. Uh, what's a great podcast or YouTube series that, that you're plugged into? 
Oh man, like I got to shout out my boy, uh, the great John Berthold, uh, Real Ones. Uh, I was featured on one of the episodes, but he's uh, his number two podcast, I think, in the States, if not the world. Uh, big time actor. We went to school together here at Sidwell. Um, so shout out Real Ones. Perfect. Okay. What was the first time that you were in a room when you realized you didn't know anything about basketball or maybe just didn't know as much as the people around you in that room? Probably at the Rock Nation dinner, uh, 2016, Houston Final Four. Uh, it was a dinner for assistant coaches uh, and all of, you know, all head coaches uh, learning about what it takes to be a coach at the next level. And Daryl Morey and all these different, you know, heads were in there. And, and that's where I learned that 10% is coaching and the rest of the stuff is the CEO and all that stuff. So, yeah, I was, I was around some heavyweights that night. <laughs> What coaches do you study? I know you mentioned Jay Wright. Are there any others that that you really kind of look at what they do really closely offensively or defensively or culture-wise? Culture yeah, yeah, a ton of them, man. But I'd say a few. John Beeline, um, from his offensive concepts and, you know, movement and spacing. Uh, Kelvin Sampson, you know, from just a toughness standpoint of, you know, how to get guys, you know, to play all out. And um, like I said, Jay Wright, um, you know, down to trying to think who else I like. Um, who else do I like? I've always liked Mike Bray. Mm. Yeah, I've always liked Mike Bray. Mm. Uh, so there's a, a bunch of guys, though. There's a bunch of guys I look at. I'm a, I'm a fan of coaches. Okay. What's the hardest shot in basketball? What spot on the floor or what type of shot? Ooh. Uh, the guys are making it at such a proficient clip now, and it's hard for me to say the corner shot, even though I still think that's the toughest angle to make shots. But the kids now, I mean, we practice on this shot a lot, but I'd say I'd take any kid in the gym now and shoot him uh, in a game with Pig and make him make uh, bank shots. I don't think they could do it. <laughs> so the bank <laughs> shot has become the hardest shot in the game. <laughs> you dating yourself now, coach. <laughs> it's, a, it's an OG shot. Yeah. All right. So last one is your your defensive coach. Do you think the hand checking should be brought back at every level of basketball? Maybe not all out shoving, you know, Michael yeah. Jordan steering him with his hip, but more um not calling block fouls, you know, when they're kind of sliding with hands up type deal. Mm. I mean, I, I tend to like, even though we guard and we're really physical and tough, I, I tend to like the freedom of movement. Mm. Um, but I do, I think the referees, honestly, Aaron, have adjusted to allowing the quick punch as long as you get out of there. Um, so if you're saying somewhere in between, like, you know, Derek Harper and Jordan putting their whole hand in your hip and like guiding you to being able to like just have it there. As long as it's not a disadvantage and you kind of leave the discretion to the ref, I'm okay with that. We learn to play through that. That would, that would benefit us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I actually lied. Last question that I just thought of right now. Um, what's like the the time that's left in the game that you would feel most comfortable playing a player with his fourth foul, like an important player? When like, like when when you bring him back? Yeah. Um. Or man, what? So what point does it matter that that you would leave him in the game? Say, oh, there's X amount of minutes left. It depends on who they are, honestly. Like, I, I couldn't make a blanket statement. It depends on, like, you know, if I knew the temperament of, like, how they play. Obviously, I could change defenses to try to protect them. So, with that being said, just to answer your question, I think 
depending on the, the, the status of the game, whether we win or losing, but let's say it was even, right? Um, then I think anywhere between four minutes, like four, like mm-hmm. 430, 430 to four, mm-hmm. you know, you should be able to play that segment, you know, throughout the game where I would feel comfortable um, losing him if he did pick it up. In minutes, sorry, this is also popped in my head. So as far as minutes for your guys, do you have kind of a card where a certain rotation kind of comes in or that's just something where you lean on your assistance or is that just a feel thing? Yeah, I don't. I still do it from feel. You know, I see a lot of guys with cards. Uh, I've been thinking about, you know, you never want to be stifled and and say that you're away and you try to, you know, I'd love to talk to some guys who do that. Um, But I've always done it through feel just, um, and usually it's filled through practice. Like, that's what I'm saying. I actually take practice, like, very seriously. I take the scout very seriously. So I take the matchup, like, kind of like who we're playing. Like, I may know the first six or seven guys there, mm-hmm. um, as far as rotation, how I may want to get Cam out of the game at the end of the first quarter, mm-hmm. uh, maybe at the five-minute mark, and then so he can sit through the timeout. Um, so I have a somewhat of a feel for those first seven guys, as far as, like, it being rotational. Uh, but the rest of the guys, if I'm trying to get up to nine or 10 guys, that's usually about Phil. Okay. And sorry, I promise this is the last question. It's all good. Tell me about your team kind of going into next year. Um, some of the, some of the pieces, you know, and how you kind of expect them to progress and in, in their new role next year and what you think they'll come back from their summer AU experience kind of having in their bag. Yeah, hopefully I can keep these guys, you know, the biggest challenge for any coach at this level and, you know, with all the media and the attention is hopefully they'll come back as humble, if not more humble than they were this year, um, ready to work their tails off. Um, You cannot lose a Cam Gillis and think you're going to be better, you know, right away. Um, So Caden Lewis and Caleb Gillis uh, got a ton of big shoes to fill. Um, so I'm hoping that the guys can come back one healthy. But like I said, to me, being if they're humble and like really ready to work and not starting to read some of their press, uh, then we'll, we'll have a chance to be good again. But it'll be a challenge no no matter what. You know, you lose guys like Cam Gillis, uh, Chris Russell, you know, Charlie Taylor, Renze Achafusi, and uh, Selden Pickens. That's a heck of a senior class of guys who have played at different uh, components of the program. You got Cam all the way as a freshman. And you got Selden. Uh, who came up as a JV player, Charlie, who came up as a JV player, uh, as well as Arenze. So guys who have come through your program, who knows what it's all about. Hard to replace that when you're talking, when your culture's at the forefront of what you do and you lose five guys who understand culture, um, we got a lot of work to do. Got you. All right, well, I appreciate the time, Coach. Let the people know where they can find you on social media. Man, I I think I know my handles. It's uh, SFS Coach 5 at Twitter. Yeah. Um, and I think it's uh, uh, East Singletary 25 at on uh, IG. Okay. Um, but right. easy to find though. Like I, you know, I guess I'm still a baby when it comes to like some of this social media stuff. Gotcha. Appreciate the time, Coach. We'll catch up soon. Thanks, Aaron. Appreciate. It.